I pray you would sanctify my every word and make it yours. That nothing would be amiss, but that your Holy Spirit would speak directly to your people whom you love. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Oh, that good, huh? (laughs) Okay, fair enough. We'll take that. We're going to be in Luke 14, the passage I just read this morning, uh, 25 to 33. Um, A very familiar passage, isn't it? I mean, we've all heard this before, especially if you've read like Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship, uh, which I think probably in some of your study Bibles, it probably titles this section of Scripture, probably says the cost of discipleship or counting the cost or something along those lines. Very familiar passage. And I think this passage is surprisingly straightforward because, let's be honest, Jesus doesn't always speak plainly, (laughs) does he? Sometimes he really goes off into these, these odd little places where folks can't always track with him. Some do, some don't. This is surprisingly straightforward. Jesus doesn't always speak so plainly, but he does here. This passage is also pretty uncompromising in its conditions and demands. It offers a clear picture of rigorous discipleship. And Jesus would probably say there's no other kind than rigorous discipleship. Now, recall with me, just a little backstory here. Can't resist. Uh, Jesus is still on his journey to Jerusalem, that place of our salvation, the place of his death. He began this journey way back in Luke 9. We've kind of been tracking with him as I've preached on the gospel Uh, Luke's gospel from time to time and talking about he's headed to Jerusalem, he's headed to Jerusalem, he's headed to Jerusalem. He's still uh, en route and he's gathering disciples along the way. So there's a certain, uh, I guess, a building momentum as he heads towards the cross and towards Jerusalem. It's building. I think this is perhaps why Jesus chose this moment to ask people to take stock and to make some pretty critical spiritual assessments. Now, the conversation changes here towards the Luke, end of uh, Luke 14. Previously, Jesus was primarily addressing uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders. Uh, that was a lot of last week's gospel reading, and I believe the week before. Uh, he's reproved them, rebuked them, exhorted them to charity, humility, generosity. Well, the conversation changes here a little bit in terms of the audience. He's now speaking to those who are currently follow him, following him. And what I mean by that is those who aren't actively Uh, set against him. His audience is no longer his detractors. He's speaking to large crowds traveling with him on his way to Jerusalem. That's what the text says. So here's the picture you need to have. Some are disciples, fair. Some are curious, maybe soon to be disciples. Some are looky-loos. Some are those that will desert. So it is a broad mixture. Everyone in these crowds isn't necessarily going to continue to follow Jesus. Some are, uh, some some will, some won't. But his teaching, he's a scattershot method. His teaching is directed to everyone in his crowd, not just his devoted followers, okay? For those contemplating following Jesus, he's very clear about what the ask is. What does it mean to be my disciple, and what do I require of you? What does it mean? What's the buy-in? Um, and he chooses to speak to them as, as their rabbi. They're his students. He's the rabbi, so he's going to talk to them about the nature of discipleship. What does it mean to be under his tutelage? What does it mean to follow him? More pointedly, what is the cost? What is the cost? Now, human nature tells me this, because I know my own heart, and maybe you know yours a little bit too. Don't you know some were wondering, 
uh, yeah, Jesus, but like, what's the minimum buy-in for me to like follow you, but still get the goods, right? You know, what's, what's the minimum? How can I follow you and give up some, but not everything? You know, maybe not too much, more than I want. Can I hold on to a few things? Uh, as, as we will see, Jesus himself is the fork in the road, and he doesn't offer a middle ground here. Either you follow him or you don't. You follow him or you don't. And here's how Jesus chooses to begin. Uh, ever, ever the rabble rouser when it comes to rhetoric. Uh, if you come to me and you don't hate your mother, your father, your wife, and your children, your brothers and your sisters, hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Cannot. Notice the condition there. Cannot. We're going to hear that three times in this passage. Okay? And each time there's a condition to it. Now, does Jesus mean literally hate your family? What do you think? No, not literally, okay? Because that would contradict a number of other scriptures. doesn't mean that, but he is saying something radical here. Jesus is speaking forcefully, vividly. He often does this to cut through the static. He was never shy to use, as I said, rhetoric or hyperbole to get his point across. Hate here is a Hebrew idiom. We see it in Genesis 29, Deuteronomy 21. Let me give you the Genesis example. Jacob is said to hate Leah but to love Rachel. What that actually means, if I can translate it for us, is that Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. Hating in this context and with this idiom means to love less. Okay, so when you hear hate, love less. Hate means to love blank more than so-and-so. Okay, Jesus is using this idiom, which would have been familiar to his audience, a little bit foreign to us, to get his point across. Hate equals you must love your family less than me. You must love me more than them. Okay, does that make sense, what he's saying here? He's saying it forcefully, very clearly, but it's not hate in the way that we think of it. In this, Jesus is asking to occupy not just sort of a unique place in your life, but the unique place in your life. He's asking for all of you. This is about what Jesus is asking for, is loyalty, submission, and here's the phrase I want to hit at really hard, radical allegiance, radical allegiance. Uh, let me give you an example from marriage. Biblically, when we marry someone, we are called to leave and cleave, right? We leave our respective families, we cleave to our spouse. There is a changing of allegiance that happens when we marry, okay? In other words, the family that you're leaving, you're not leaving for good. Your allegiance is switching from them to your spouse. Do you know how many marital problems come about because folks don't leave their families? <laughs> big time, big time. And that can follow you into adulthood. Don't think it's just a one-time thing, okay? So it's an issue of allegiance, and Jesus is asking for nothing less than all of your allegiance. That's why I said it's radical allegiance. And saying this to the crowds, his point, his challenge is clear. Where does your allegiance lie? Where does it lie? If you don't surrender all, or if you love your nearest and dearest uh, more than me, you, he says, you cannot be my disciple. It's about undivided loyalty, right? All of your allegiance to Jesus. Now, with regards to the family, maybe some of you guys have experienced this. I don't know all your stories where your faith has cost you something in the realm of your family and ex extended or otherwise. Perhaps so. Perhaps some of you need to further decide where your loyalties lie regarding Jesus and your family. I don't know. 
Let me give you a little first century context, too, because it's a little bit different to talk about hating your family, loving Jesus more than your family, uh, that sort of thing. A Jewish person who chose to follow Jesus would likely alienate his or her family. Okay? They would likely be rejected to some degree. Let me give you an example. So many family members, they were usually engaged in the same occupation, whether it was fishing or farming or whatever that was. So losing one of its members, losing one of the worker bees in that machine, that family machinery, could be detrimental to the family's well-being. So it's a big deal. It's a very different culture than ours, where we're told we can kind of have everything Jesus included and sacrifice a little here and there, but kind of keep and do what we want still. There was a real sacrifice in following Christ in the first century that I think is hard for us to get our arms around. Okay, But Jesus' point here around hating, loving less, all that I'm talking about uh, is about, as I said, radical allegiance. Radical allegiance. Now, my strong suspicion is that Jesus wants to be first in all of these relationships that he just listed. Okay, What do I mean by that? Okay, what does it mean to put God at the center of your marriage? Okay, number one. What does it mean to put him as the center of your family? Number one. Uh, first in all of these places of our lives. Lord over every area. Because only then, get this, will we love our fathers, our mothers, our wives, our husbands, our children, our brothers and sisters as we should. Right? Because if Jesus isn't the center, if he isn't number one, if you want to put it that way, in those relationships... We won't love well, will we? We won't love as God intended. The great paradox of loving Jesus with a whole being means that we are then free to love others as he intends. If you want some proof, uh, I'd be happy to give you some. Uh, there's a reason that the love of God comes first in the great commandment, okay? And there's a reason that it comes up front in the Ten Commandments before this call to love neighbor and all these rules around that. With God to orient us first, without that, we won't love well. Okay, so Jesus is radically restructuring our identity here as a disciple. Our new identity now orbits around something other than family, social status, or even our own life. Our devotion to Jesus becomes the new measuring stick, radical allegiance, the first mark of a disciple. Let's get to the second mark. And if you're a point taker, there's three, so you're in luck. I do because I'm a good Trinitarian, not because there's magic to three points, but that's beside the point. Second point of identity as a disciple, verse 27. So radical allegiance, number one. Uh, two, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, uh, I wonder how the crowds heard this. I think it might have struck them as maybe strange or a little odd. Why do I say this? Take up your cross. Okay, remember, the crucifixion hasn't happened yet. And the crowds don't have that as a point of reference yet. It's not sort of in the Christian vernacular yet, if you want to think of it that way. It's not the same symbol for them as it is for us because we've got hindsight, right? So I think what we have to do is take this. There's a bit of divine foreshadowing going on that Jesus is talking about. Did you hear that second cannot? <laughs> those, who don't, those who do not take up their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There's again, the second time that cannot said, the second time a condition is mentioned. Yikes! Jesus is very uncompromising here, isn't he? He's saying that the cross, i.e. sacrifice, is part and parcel of Christian disciples of following him. One author puts it this way. This is why bearing the cross and coming after Jesus is the issue of discipleship. 
learning from Jesus means following him, experiencing the rejection he experienced, and so bearing the cross he bore. We cannot, quote, learn Jesus without being prepared to walk this path. <coughs> Makes sense, right? Good logic. There's a willingness to suffer for the sake of your faith. Bonhoeffer puts it this way, familiar quote you've heard, when Christ calls someone, he bids them to come and die. Sounds dire, but the whole point is you give up your life, you die to yourself, and God gives it back to you. He resurrects it. Uh, incidentally, when it speaks of carrying your cross here, it's in the present tense. But you go, why does that matter? Why should I care? I'm so glad you asked. I'd love to share that with you. This emphasizes sort of an ongoing, continual nature of living a cruciform, a cross-shaped life. So carrying our cross is a process that extends throughout our lives. It's not just a one-time decision to follow Jesus. It's an ongoing series of life decisions about following in the master's footsteps, okay? So alongside radical allegiance that we talked about in the previous verse, here Jesus makes carrying your cross, number two, another part of a disciple's core identity. Okay? Radical allegiance, carrying your cross. So to the crowd, all these spiritual seekers surrounding Jesus, he says this. This is my message, Joel's message version. <laughs> Before you look at the miracles I performed, Okay? Before you look at all the healings, all the feedings, all the signs, all the sensational, before you root for me when I stick it to those proud Pharisees and Sadducees, before you lobby behind me as the political war messiah you hope will set you free, all you dreamers, all you malcontents, all you hopefuls and the like, before you cast your lot in with me, when the glory fades and when you're not surrounded by excitement and miracles anymore, will you still follow me? Will you still follow me? In other words, you've seen the good stuff. You've seen the blessings of the kingdom. You've seen the wonderful things of the kingdom. But now it's time to lay out the costs. And here's the buy-in. Jesus is going to lay out the buy-in. And he goes on to exhort us to count the costs. You've heard that phrase, and it's been in the gajillion Christian songs too. Jesus gives... Uh, two pictures to illustrate his point. If you're tracking with me, this is verses uh, 28 to 32. First one is you're building a tower. And to give you a picture of what they're talking about here, it means like a watchtower for a vineyard or like a farm building or something along these lines. Uh, his point here is you've got to plan. You've got to think about materials. You've got to think about cost of labor. You've got to think about the time that's needed. You've got to think about contingency plans that take weather and people into account. You've got to plan, Okay. There's a certain amount of resources, money, in this case, to complete the project. Now, first obvious observation. This building costs you something, okay? It costs you something. Are you willing to sacrifice other options, the other things you could spend that money on to do this? So it costs you something. Are you willing to give up whatever the opportunities you lose by doing it? Uh, secondly, which is more to the point of this parable, um, do you have the necessary money to complete it, right? You have the goods. Or do you launch out without counting the cost, making a plan only to fail because you can't finish? So Jesus is being very clear here that it takes more than that initial enthusiasm and passion. <laughs> it takes more than that. It takes an honest assessment, underscore, underscore, at the very beginning. At the beginning. Before you ever set out, before you ever start to build, when it speaks of the man sitting down and counting the cost, it's a picture of someone who's very deliberative, who's sitting down and very careful. Do I have the money to do this? Uh, am I willing to invest it in this way? 
A half-finished tower, we find out, brings shame and derision upon the man. That's what happens when you don't count the cost. And I think there's something convicting in that. We can bring shame upon not just ourselves, but also sometimes upon God and his church. So there's, there's a weightiness to this parable. That's one picture Jesus uh, speaks of in terms of counting the cost. Building a tower, you don't plan ahead, and you can't finish. And there's shame that comes with it. Second one, two warring kings. And Jesus is putting us in the shoes of the king who's defending himself. He's being attacked. Did you notice that? In the first parable, you're kind of in the driver's seat. Uh, do I build the tower or not? Uh, in this one, the circumstances are against you, and you have to respond because your back is against the wall. So when you're being attacked and outnumbered, uh, rather than going on the offensive, charge, you know, doing that, this king, in this case, says he counts the cost. He honestly assesses the situation, and he's all the wiser for it. If he can't win, Jesus tells us he's wise to make peace. Now, let me speak to both these parables a little bit. Both of them beg for a very careful, ready, aim, fire methodology. Not mixing those up. Not fire, aim, ready. Not aim, ready, fire. I mean, ready, aim, fire. They're begging for that. They're begging for wisdom begging for a careful de deliberation rather than like a, a snap decision or just an overly uh, emotional commitment to follow Jesus. He's really laying it out. He's not making it easy. He's saying, this is what it means to follow me. <laughs> Notice both parables speak of our inadequate resources as human beings. Did you kind of catch that flavor? Both people in these parables are in a position of need for varying reasons. And this speaks to something of our level of need and I think of our reliance upon the Lord. But in both examples, both with the tower, the warring kings, Jesus is asking the crowds, knowing full well that some will not follow him to the end. He's asking them to count the cost. Count the cost, right? Count the cost. Uh, are you sure you want to follow me? Are you prepared to follow me? Have you ever thought about what it means to surrender everything? Are you ready for that? Now, we get, reality is we get a lifetime to live that out. But God is honest about the costs up front. Why else would Jesus bear a cross, speak of suffering so often, continue to invite people with those two simple words, follow me, follow me. Okay, so uh, carrying our cross, counting the cost, that's kind of the second piece. Third piece of uh, discipleship identity, verse 33. In the same way, those of you who don't give up or renounce, some translations say, everything you have cannot be my disciples. Those of you who don't give up and renounce everything you have cannot be my disciples. Uh, 33 is like a summary of everything Jesus just laid out. Loving all, el loving all else less than him, taking up your cross, counting the cost, all that. Giving up everything, everything, is the third and final part of our identity as disciples. Did you hear that third cannot? It's kind of hard. It's jarring. Cannot be my disciple unless this. That's the conditional refrain that happens over and over and over. Jesus, what's the minimum buy-in for following you? What would be your guess? Everything. Everything. That's why the rich young ruler went away sad. Okay? He thought he had given everything to God and was following him. Then Jesus told him, sell all you have, give it to the poor. He hadn't surrendered all to God. He wanted to keep on holding to his money. He wasn't willing to be a disciple. He wasn't willing to give up his wealth, his money, to follow Jesus. 
Now, when it speaks of giving up everything and renouncing everything, let me give you another way to think about it. Maybe this will help. It means to leave behind or to, if you want to think of it this way, to bid farewell. Okay? To leave behind, to bid farewell, bid it adieu. Uh, this also occurs in the present tense. Again, that matters because it's an ongoing, utterly defining part of our identity as disciples. In other words, to translate it this way, so be constantly leaving behind everything. Be constantly doing that. Be actively doing that. Be always bidding farewell to all that you have for my sake, for Jesus' sake. Strikes at the very heart of our materialism, our wealth, our stuff. I mean, just bam, right on us. There are so many instances, just like in verse 33, where Jesus is so honest about the cost of following him. Brutally so. Here's what you're getting into. Consider it. Take stock. Will you follow me if it means this? I have to think uh, this is part of Jesus' intention and strategy is he's trying to turn away the half-hearted and potential followers on some level. There's just sifting that happens here. Now, let's take a step back. Do you hear how straightforward and how clear Jesus is in this passage? Let me see a head nod, yes or no. Do you see this? Okay. He is being straightforward and clear. Do you hear how radical and uncompromising these demands and claims are that he makes upon us as disciples? Hardcore. Unapologetic as well. He offers us a clear picture of rigorous discipleship. As I said, there is no other kind of discipleship. And that should cause us pause. Will I follow Jesus? Will I love him more than all else? Will I take up my cross? Will I give up everything I have unto him? Who asks so much of us besides the Lord? I don't know about you. As I look around, not everywhere, but in certain places, I feel like the church wants to soften this ask. Take the edges off it. Make discipleship just more palatable. Make it, it's got to be more user-friendly, right? Make it more user-friendly. It kind of is this, picture it this way. It's almost the way it's talked about in some circles. It's discipleship is sort of like a special option for those who are really serious about the faith. It's kind of like, well, some people are going to major in faith. I, I'm going to minor in it, right? I'm going to dabble. <laughs> I'm going to dabble. Yeah, I'm going to be a dilettante. But you, you serious Christians, you guys can do that faith. You guys can do that following Jesus thing. And I think sometimes in church, we don't want to offend. We don't want to ask too much. I mean, that might make people uncomfortable. It might make them go to a different church, or they might do who knows what. But when we preach and proffer a watered-down gospel, should we be all that surprised that the result is a bunch of harmless and cultural Christians? Shouldn't. Now, let's do a poll. I'm going to see if I've kept you awake. <laughs> You guys are getting nervous. Getting nervous. Um, we're going to talk about the minimum buy-in to follow Jesus. Um, is it, can I get, can I see 70%? Maybe raise your hands. No? I mean, 70 is pretty good. You bat 700 in the major leagues and you're a god. So 70%, okay. What about 80? That's better. Is that the minimum buy-in? Okay, I got to keep going. 90 I mean, 90% is incredible. If you get a 90% rate of return on anything, you would be well wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. Okay, okay, okay. You guys are a tough crowd. 99.9%. .9 is that the minimum buy-in for following Jesus? I think I know what's going on here. 
Raise your hand if it's 100%. That's it. When you choose to follow Christ, you're admitting that your life is not your own and that you're handing God the keys to your heart, to your life, to your money, to your relationships, to everything, everything. Now, as I said before, this is a pretty clear passage, pretty straightforward passage, pretty uncompromising passage, and I think it begs some very simple questions. Is our primary allegiance to Jesus, or do other allegiances hold sway? Okay, so where does your allegiance lie? And if it's not with Jesus, what are those other loves? What are they? So see if you can find yourself in one of these scenarios. Some of you here have spent most of your life in church. Maybe you've grown up in the church from day one, and yet you've never chosen to follow Jesus and become his disciple. It happens all the time. What other loves are getting in the way? What other loves are getting in the way? Is today the day that you'll put your life in God's hands and say, Yes, finally, to him. Okay? Maybe that's you. Some of you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe your experience is completely opposite, growing up in the church, which isn't always a bad thing. <laughs> Maybe some of you did not grow up in the church, and yet you're now hearing Jesus' call for the first time. Maybe he's beckoning you. What will your answer be? What will your answer be? Some of you perhaps said yes to the Lord years ago, right? But you've tended to kind of follow Jesus at a safe distance. Do you know what I mean? You don't allow him to ask too much of your life. Nothing too radical here, right? We're not going to do that. Perhaps you're more religious or, or sort of culturally Christian than anything else. Maybe that's you. I don't know. Some of you, I know this for a fact because I know some of your stories, some of you have followed Jesus for years, Okay? You've been on that road of discipleship, and you've experienced the cost. You've walked through many difficulties. You've borne your cross. You've, you're trying to give it all up. You strive to make Jesus your first love, even though you know he isn't always, but you're always sort of aiming at that. Take heart, take courage, keep saying yes to the Lord. And there are countless other examples of where our allegiance lies. Okay, Those are just a few. Find yourself somewhere in there. Where does your allegiance lie? With Jesus? Or elsewhere. Now, in these all these situations, I'm going to cover this with one umbrella. Okay, in all these situations, my exhortation to you is simply this: go all in. Go all in. Put it all, meaning your life, you put it all in God's hands, and find out what this crazy thing called discipleship is all about. Jesus took a few fish and loaves of bread, and he fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So 5,000 plus people. A miracle with just fish and bread. How much more precious is your life to God than fish and bread? How much more precious? How much more can God do with a life yielded to him? So, friends, brothers and sisters, go all in. Go all in. And then we can all collectively and individually stand back and watch what the Lord does. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus.